0: hi it's julia here just a quick note before we start the show you're listening to one of our earlier episodes and the audio might be a tiny bit ropey in places we do figure out how to fix that in later episodes thanks for listening and i hope you enjoy the show welcome to the Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times.
1: We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky
0: food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. welcome to the show thank you so much for joining us it's uh, lovely to have you with us for people who don't know who you are can you perhaps give us a super quick introduction uh, just a bit of context and who you are and uh, and what you do in the food industry
2: Sure. Thank you for inviting me, Laura and Julia. Um, right. OK. My name's Lydia Stratton. I am the head of commercial development at RSPCA Assured. And my area covers the product side and supply chain. So I manage things like the supply chain traceability, the auditing and also uh, the commercial development side. So I engage with the retailers, food service, etc.
0: Brilliant. And you've brought two really interesting articles to us. Um, so, do you want to kick us off with your, your first article and just tell us um, what, what you've brought and, and why it caught your attention?
2: Yeah, certainly. Well, as um, we are within RSPCA, sure, looking at um, at food service, this article really did catch my eye. It's an article in the Footprint News from Food Service Footprint. It was written by David Burrows on the and published on the 12th may and essentially it highlights about the hospitality business and the concerns that uh, social distancing is not really going to be commercially viable for quite a lot of these companies um it's it's a really sad situation really because there are so many wonderful small restaurants and cafes especially in london and i'm sure throughout the country that are really small um that you know they have a Very, very small footfall, I suppose you could say. And, uh, you know, compared to some of the big companies that we have, you really do wonder how they're going to manage. And so when the government, the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, actually suggested that social distancing could be in play up until Christmas. I mean, that's a bit shocking because, you know, everybody thought three weeks, six weeks, maybe till June, maybe till July. But Christmas and I know that Kate Nichols, who's the UK hospitality chief executive, she just hadn't considered that it would be so intrusive. And, you know, she actually said in an interview that she thought it was an incredible shock. Well, I think it was a shock to everybody, not just her. Um, however, the hospitality se- sector, you know, is really going to struggle. And um, this, this is why it caught my eye, is that the government's 60-page recovery strategy says that some venues, which are, by design, crowded and where it may prove difficult to enact distancing may still not be able to reopen safely at this point or may not be able to open safely um, only in part and the point of the pub as uh, CEO of Green King Nick McKenzie says is the point of the pub is to socialize so what on earth do they do next it, it's shocking also from the point that um whilst whilst they're covered with the uh, the Retention scheme up until October, the stats are really quite shocking, and you know there's going to be a need for increased flexibility for hospitality because they're just not going to be able to go from standstill to full capacity, as uh, Kate sort of highlights. Um, and really, the the fact is that there is going to need to be a bit more clarity about what's going to happen. How are these pubs and clubs and not so much clubs, but the small restaurants going to open if they've got a socially distance, especially when you've got small restaurants that have maybe, I don't know, a capacity for about 20 people. Um, And some of the the statistics, which I I just wanted to highlight really, is that apparently many businesses would open with just 30 to 40% of normal revenues if social distancing measures are in place. Many work on incredibly small margins and rely on high volumes of people, and they need, apparently, 60% of revenue coming through before they even make a profit. Really, the last couple of things were that with a survey that was done by the, um, the National Statistics Office, 1.2% had permanently ceased trading, 80.6% had paused, and 182 were continuing to trade. And according to UK Hospitality, 75% of its members were closed almost entirely with 84% of the workforce successfully furloughed. So where do we go from here, is question.
0: And, and as you say, I, I think some of the the figures around this, some of the stats around it, are really quite sobering. And what struck me about David's article um, is just is the point you made in that you can, it, on paper, you can have a situation where you say, hey, you can reopen again in some form. Yeah. And then in practice, you are still leaving these um, these hospitality businesses with a completely impossible situation where they are having to um, adapt their business models so much that, that there isn't a business left. And it really reminded me, there was a um, interesting article in the Times the other day that sort of spoke to, I think, a similar issue. And and they had um, an example of a a small hotel that was trying to figure out how it was going to cope with social distancing. Um, And they quoted the hotel owner who had to look at his conference room um, and basically say, well, how would I need to adjust that conference room if I had an event and people had to social distance? And he found he ended up being able to seat just 22 people where previously he would have been able to to seat 130. And at that stage, well, you don't have a viable business running conferences in your hotel anymore. So, yeah, as you say, it's... Um, So difficult to see where these businesses are going to go next from there. Yeah.
1: One of the things from that article, and you're right, some of those figures are are sobering. I was quite surprised actually that the amount of businesses that have ceased trading was only 1.2%. I actually thought it would be be higher than that because there's a lot of discussion, isn't there? probably for the last 18 months, two years, about overcapacity in that food service market. And we've seen some big players um, exit the sector. Uh, And I didn't know if, you know, as we've seen in in high street retail, and we chatted about in in week one, some of them that were probably on the brink have decided to to cease trading. So I was surprised that figure was, was less than 2%. And it'll be interesting to track that over the next couple of months to see if, if that does significantly um, increase as you say you know these businesses rely on heavy throughput and without that
2: how are they going to be able to continue well I mean Absolutely. I suppose the positive side to it is that they have found other ways to trade they are using they are either going online where possible or even just going on to takeaway and certainly there are some in London that you know they are well known they might not be very big but they have a, a, a following that wants to have the takeaway they want to have sort of higher quality food or whatever it may be um and it's working for them so maybe that's why they've actually adapted to the whole situation mm. so that's why it's less sure
1: thank you for your first story i'm so, going to uh, tell you about but my first pick of the week and um I'm not, I'm not going to make any apologies for it I'm a big fan of John Lewis I always like watching what they're up to um, and they published a report um, over the weekend um, called Britain Through the Lockdown and this is um, a survey that they've done of 2,000 representative adults in the UK across the last uh, six or seven weeks and they've also cross-referenced that with their own data across um, not only John Lewis' estate but obviously Waitrose too, and seeing what people are assert for online and some of the uh, figures in there are, again re- really interesting and um, out of food for a moment the the thing that uh, leaped out was uh, the growing number of people are making their own protective masks and watching a lot of media this week you can't call them masks the face coverings but I won't pick them up on that uh, driving sales of elastic up by 1,430% now I know that's probably off quite a small base but um, it's still pretty high Uh, and I know I did sort of when I read that I thought gosh have we got any elastic in the house and I was thinking about hair bobbles at that point for, for face masks so uh, face coverings so um, the other other really interesting um, I guess trends that we're doing as humans um, popular buys and lockdown massive trend landlines are up 80% which is um, uh, quite surprising and then the second which I'm not actually buying uh, but Other spirits are available. Tequila, up 175%. um, And randomly decorative bedding, up 130%. So... um what well, what we're doing in terms of food um, was particularly of interest. Uh, 45% of the, the respondents to the survey say they're eating differently through lockdown. And mm-hmm. I, I guess this is hugely interesting, as we, we've just spoken about, you know, that these um, changing times aren't just a, a few weeks, they're going to be months. So when does it. Um, when does this change and eating differently become a permanent habit and i guess for the food industry this is something that we're very much watching um, half have uh, worked harder to use store cupboard ingredients and not waste food and i think that that's a potential huge benefit of you know what we've gone through that people are a lot more minded about food waste and 38 percent have snacked more i'm definitely in that category and 19 percent are sitting at the table together for more meals which is really nice actually isn't it when you think about it, because it was so, used to that fast paced life, and maybe particularly for a family unit, getting the whole family around the table at once has been pretty tough with different activities and that sort of thing. So, uh, th- that's really interesting. Um, and then at the end of the report, there's uh, some sound bites, as, as you would anticipate some sort of corporate type sound bites, but from some experts within the um, John Lewis family and there's a, a quote from Natalie Mitchell who's the Waitrose um, Head of Innovation and Product Development Specialist and she's talking about restaurant experience at home which leads on nicely from, from your first article you in terms of you know looking ahead many of us will be eating three meals at home that people want variation of their cooking particularly at the moment and we need Saturday night type dinners and um, it goes on to say that Waitrose are going to be looking for more and more products that they can I guess have at the premium end of their range to allow people to feel special in their own home and comfortable but it's more than just you use your usual beans on toast or chili con carne or spag bol that's all my uh, cooking repertoire there by the way so uh, <laughs> what did you guys think of the report are you as geeky about uh, John john as i am i just i'm really interested in everything they produce
2: I thought it was really interesting, actually. I love John Lewis, actually. Um, and uh, I, I thought the report was really good. It, it did highlight some changes, which hopefully will continue as we, you know, uh, are, when we come out of this, I suppose. And it's really nice to see people sitting down, to know that people are sitting down. I mean, certainly when you wander around, you see people with their kids, uh, maybe slightly older kids than they would normally have had time to spend with. But um, from the report point of view, I, I found... Uh, that uh, what we've been doing at home was quite interesting and the Joe Wicks effect with 44% of us doing more exercise during lockdown. Um, I think there was something like a 72% uplift in sales of sports shoes which oh yeah, great I've seen an awful lot of people trying to run I, I say try um, that's, uh, no.
0: I'm afraid I'd be in that category unfortunately <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but also that you know well like i said 51% spending more time with loved ones so yeah I thought that I thought it was an excellent report actually it really highlighted the, the change um, in in mindset I suppose because we've had to
0: because. Well, what really struck me was um, was precisely the point, Laura, that you raised about people trying to um, sort of recreate a restaurant experience in, in their own home. And it really made me think about my own shopping habits. So maybe I'm doing this wrong. But um, so I'm not online shopping. I'm, I'm shopping in store. I feel really self-conscious browsing at the moment. I would say I've become far less adventurous in my shopping habits than than, than these people apparently have been because I, I so worry that I'm going to hold people up. I'm going to dawdle. I'm going to look for ingredients. I'll maybe you know, shop for something slightly complicated. So, yeah, it's had the opposite effect on me. I'm, I'm, so, I'm really interested Um that so many people seem to have have used this as an opportunity to to be more adventurous. It's Um, a great point you make there, actually, because
1: um, I was speaking to a colleague in Canada yesterday and she was talking about the garden centres have just opened in in Canada this week. But they've got a lot of signage outside that if you haven't got a list, you're not coming in. And you're not coming in to browse. You know, you need to be very clear on what you're getting. You've got five minutes in there, you're in and you're out. And you always think that, particularly a garden centre environment, that is where you're browsing and relaxing and spending a bit of time. So you're right, actually, for food retail, that's probably, you know, it needs to be really in your face and easy to pick up and move on. You're right, otherwise, you don't want to look at the back of packets and cooking instructions because you're going to have a queue behind you getting a bit angsty.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean I, I can see that if you if you are one of the lucky people who have online delivery slots, then then of course I think, you know, you can take your time a little bit more and, and you can you can maybe opt for some interesting ingredients. I think kimchi was one of the the other ones in there in the report, wasn't it? Massive uplift in, in sales of kimchi or interesting kimchi. But but yeah, I find I I really feel under pressure to sort of go in and be out as, as quickly as, as possible, um, so I think there is clearly a challenge for, for food retailers to to find a way for some of that product discovery and some of that browsing to happen mm-hmm. whilst at the same time sticking to you know sensible social distancing measures, uh, measures as well. Yeah. What was your first picker this week? So, my first pick this week is from the New Yorker, um, and it's an interview with Arif Hussein, who's the um, chief economist at the United Nations World Food Programme. I picked this interview because it focuses on an aspect of the coronavirus crisis that is becoming more urgent every day, and that is the impact on food poverty and hunger. Uh, we know, of course, coronavirus has been enormously disruptive to global supply chains. And the chaos uh, that has brought is, is really having a, a devastating impact around the world. And again, the figures are quite staggering. So according to the UN, uh, the number of people suffering what they from, from what they call acute food insecurity could double to close to 300 million as a result of this pandemic. And the interview um, in The New Yorker with Arif Hussein, I think does a really good job of explaining some of the factors that are driving this. Um, and I thought there were a couple of, of points that, that are worth highlighting in particular. I suppose the first point he makes is that the reason we are seeing the pandemic have such a devastating impact on food security is because... Our global food system was in many ways, already precarious before the crisis. We already had a bad problem with hunger. We already had a bad problem with food insecurity. And so if you add a pandemic into that mix, you just you know have a catastrophe on your hands. There's no resilience there. Um, the second point that really grabbed my attention um, was that I thought, Arif Hussein puts his finger on why this particular food crisis in the wake of coronavirus is so challenging and probably more challenging than other food crises we've seen in the past. And the way he explains this is that he says, essentially, when we've had a food crisis before, you would typically either have a demand side crisis, so something like a recession, or you would have a supply side crisis, something like crop failures or droughts. And what makes this particular food crisis so difficult is that it 's both at the same time it 's supply side crisis coupled with demand side crisis all wrapped up in one um, and and to make it even worse, you know the supply side issues you have is it, they are extreme. I mean, you're looking at certain supply chains being completely shut down, commodities just not moving through the system and, and people not being able to, to access food. And and I suppose for me, the article, um, I think, highlights two particular questions, which is on the one hand, given what we know about the impact on, on supply chains, how are we going to treat those supply chains in the future? I mean, he suggests that maybe we need to start thinking of food supply chains as essential infrastructure, and perhaps governments need to uh, need to you know play a bigger role in, in ensuring those um, that infrastructure is maintained. Um, but the main thing I think that really resonated with me here is his point about resilience or lack of resilience in the system and how this crisis is exposing problems that were already there. Um, And, of course, that's true in the developing world, you know, which he's largely talking about, as much as as it is true here um, on our own doorstep. Because, of course, we also have a a big problem with food insecurity here in the UK. We also have big problems with um, vulnerable people suddenly being um, exposed to to food insecurity, which this crisis is is highlighting.
2: I found it quite, uh, I mean, it was a brilliant article, actually. I was actually shocked by the detail in it and the fact that you know it's unprecedented and i think the the key thing that struck me was that it's uncharted and the supply chain movement they, you've never had this where it's stopped the whole thing has stopped not even in the second world war did everything stop so you know it it was really quite shocking and and really i suppose one of the the key points that that was made in the article was that if the commercial supply chains don't work The humanitarian supply chains won't work either. And we don't always necessarily think about that.
0: Absolutely. It really reminded me, actually, um, of an article that you discussed, Laura, last week, which was um, where um, commercial passenger flights stopping had an impact on, uh, you know, fresh produce supply chains, for instance. And and I think, Lydia, it's, as you say, it's, it's that sort of unintended consequence. You know, one part of the system fails and then another part that wasn't even on the radar necessarily for, for us, you know, the humanitarian supply chains also fails because it, it relies on that infrastructure. There was one line in there that really hammered
1: home to me and, and it said uh, it's never a good idea to starve your neighbor uh, and making sure and i thought and that that was mentioned a couple of times and you think yeah for political and economic reasons you know just do not do it but
0: countries are inadvertently or overtly doing it at the moment i really i i do hope that What we're seeing at the moment, you know, everyone's talking about how the pandemic is an opportunity to rethink the food system and, you know, to what extent that's going to be possible, I suppose, remains to be seen. But I think when it comes to food insecurity, you know, as I said, as much in this country as anywhere else, I I do really hope that this can be a wake up call for us to think about Um, food security and food poverty on our own doorstep a little bit more I think it's encouraging that the issue is starting to get a bit more coverage Um, but um, yeah I think it'll be important that that sort of attention is is maintained afterwards and that we're thinking really carefully about how we can build a food system rebuild a food system that doesn't leave vulnerable people this horribly exposed when things go wrong yeah yeah Definitely. Lydia, what's your what's the second article you've um, you've brought for us this well, week? Follows so
2: on nicely from this. Actually, it was um, an article. It's uh, called Three Ways Supermarkets Can Overhaul Supply Chains to Thrive in the New Normal," and it was uh, an article from the twelfth of May, written by Olivia. Gothals, um, forgive me for my—I'm my, not French. I don't speak French. Uh, from Sapiens, which uh, I'm not quite sure whether I pronounce that correctly. However, um, they are a digital transformation partner, and they've just been highlighting that supermarkets really need to start looking at their tri- supply chains and upgrade their digital um, technology to make it more robust and scalable. And highlighted also that it's those who don't do this that will not survive. You know, this, this will, if they want to thrive in the new normal, they really need to look at this. And they were also just sort of highlighting how C19 has exposed the, how fragile the supply chains and stock shortages are due to increased demand. I mean, that, that demand was so sudden, um, but, uh, but unfortunately, apparently the algorithms they use are used to predict demand and plan the supply, but they're based on historical data. So, they're looking at customer behavior, weather prediction, upcoming major global events and holiday and the holiday calendar. Um, but they don't consider the real-time information on you know, what people are buying, what are they purchasing. And that's really what he's saying is that the, the grocers must evolve their technology to have a real-time and end-to-end view on the whole supply chain, which absolutely and detect the trends and demands, et cetera. And it's quite interesting what he's suggesting is that obviously uh, this technology is all in place, but he's suggesting things like electronic shelf labels, which can react to limit the number of items that can be purchased. Um, And so if people want to buy multiple packs of hand sanitizers, the price actually goes up as opposed to go down, which is a bit of a change from the bog off where you're used to having, you know, buy one get one free or three for two, and it's it's cheaper. Now it's going the opposite way. Very interesting. Um, and sort of finally, he, he's um, he's just saying that you know, obviously, you know, for one pl- one supplier for certain categories, they they've one supplier for certain categories. They're going to need to look at having multiple suppliers, and you know, having having their sort of uh, stocks distributed across uh, geographies, really, to avoid the shortages. So I just found that really, really fascinating. Um, and yeah, they're, they're going to have to think about it. But it it just, it is a new normal, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And what hammered home to me on that was it's just that the rule book's gone out the window in terms of, you know, retail always refers back to, well, how did we trade this week last year? And, yeah. you know, what, what what's the comparison? Whereas, you know, th- as we're saying that. That, that's gone. And it's not about, right, well, what day did a Good Friday fall on? That That's, that's relevant now. You know, we're, we're living in very different times. So, uh, it's uh, making sure that they, they invest in, I guess, the right tech to, to lead them
0: forward. What do you see coming out of that, Julia? Again, I, I'm always fascinated when people talk about the need for big tech investments in in the wake of these crises, I think there's some really interesting tech out there. I mean, I think it would be a, a brave retailer that is, you know, adopting um, the, the system that you described. I think it's a really interesting kind of, you know, example of what you could potentially do as if you can respond in, in real time yeah. to customer demand. Um, whether you would actually want to do that right now. And then the kind of customer reaction that you might get, I think, is a, is a different matter. But, of course, we're talking about really huge organizations. so um, Investing in tech, overhauling your te- your infrastructure, you know, bringing in new technology like electronic um, labels. Of course, that's not new. People had thought about this before the crisis as well. So I think the question for me is really around which of these bits of tech are we going to see the most compelling business case in the wake of the pandemic? Because if people perhaps couldn't quite make the numbers stack up pre-crisis, I'm not sure they will necessarily be able to do that post-crisis as well. So I think at the moment, um, you sort of end up with a a laundry list of possible investments that everyone thinks they should be making and all the wonderful tech they should be buying in. But but I, I suppose it's going to take... Quite some time for us to get a sense of well what sort of investment is actually going to deliver a good return on investment in in this new normal because you know while these you know these are big companies these investments are are hugely expensive or can be very expensive and changing technology in, in such huge organizations is, I mean, those are massive projects as well. Um, I wonder how much appetite we're going to see for people to say, well, we've just come through a pandemic. Let's now massively overhaul our IT infrastructure
2: or completely implement new technology. Or well, maybe what they need to do is actually look at what they've got and just enhance what they've got. Because finally on this this article, there was the, the fact that the demand for online groceries has more than doubled, and yet systems couldn't keep up. And so as a consequence I actually missed a lot of sales online I mean you can't get on there now you can't get an online delivery if you're not sort of vulnerable um so yeah it's uh, an interesting one that is we'll see where we go and
0: and I, and I suppose one of the difficulties you have at the moment is that we you know we talk about the new normal but we really don't quite know what the new normal is going to be or how long the new normal is going to last or anything like that so um you know with something like online grocery capacity I mean A, I think a lot of the retailers actually have done a pretty impressive job of of upping capacity in a really quick period of time. Um, But of course, they will also be thinking you know, how much of this surge and demand around online is temporary and a direct result of of the really extraordinary circumstances we're in at the moment, and how much of these new habits, these new um, patterns around shopping are going to still be there once we have, you know, looser lockdown um, rules and, and perhaps have moved a little bit more towards normal. So it's a difficult one to gauge at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, definitely.
1: So I'm going to tell you for my second pick what our new normal could potentially be. It could potentially be speedy shopping. So this is an article um, from the Retail Gazette from the... 13th of May and this is Morrison's rolls out speedy shopping lanes for small basket shops and this is a really interesting move by Morrison's we've seen huge amount of growth in the uh, convenience channels and obviously online as we've touched on and also independence be that you know butchers greengrocers, your, your local high street have seen um, double digit increase in terms of footfall. But for Morrisons, they're in an interesting position. that They've got, obviously, a well-established estate but a very little um, convenience store offering. So the likes of your Sainsbury's Local and Tesco um, Express and their one-stop format too (laughs) have done extremely well. So what Morrisons have done, they've taken a look at this and realised that they've got, as all the big supermarkets have, queues out the door with people with trolleys, but people don't want to be spending a huge amount of time necessarily in said queue um, or uh, they may be, wanting just to do a smaller shop. So what Morrison's are offering is this speedy shop service. So for every one shopper that goes into a store with a trolley, they let three shoppers in with a hand basket. It does make me feel a little bit like supermarket sweep because I do feel if I was one of those three with a basket getting in with the one with a trolley, I'd feel like you, Julia, you know, as you said, I feel a bit under pressure and I'm not allowed to browse. I think, you know, it's almost a stopwatch on your wrist job. Anyway, speedy shopping, uh, you'll um, be well marshaled around the store and you also have separate checkouts. So really, it's the handbasket checkout and you can use the self-check as well and it's card payments only. So it was really interesting to just to see, you know, what different um, supermarkets are doing to uh, you know, deal with the new normal and just off the back of that um, I spotted the same day actually an article in Essential Retail um, about a Lidl launching a chat bot to inform customers the best times to shop now this is uh, on trial in Ireland um, but you can go on WhatsApp um, and you can uh, message the, the, the Lidl um, number to find out your local store what the queues is likely to be because I guess this is something that we're really unsure of until you actually drive to the C Supermarket. not only as we were saying you know, supermarkets don't know what stock levels are going to be and what demand we don't know how busy they're going to be till you've driven there or walked there or, or got there so to try and encourage people to come and um, I, I guess, continue to shop in places like Little, rather than going to your convenience store or your high street that are trying new technology. So there's a lot of watching eyes on that to see if that rolls out into, into the UK as well after it's trialled in Ireland. Do you, do you think some of these things are going to work? Do you, what's it, you know, do, they, do you find them exciting? I'm not excited to look at them in theory, but I'm not sure in, um, in practicalities if, if they will or not.
2: I think it's really interesting. I think that, I mean, there certainly there will be changes and people will stick with them. I mean, you know, with this speedy shopping, um, it does beg the question about, you know, queues in the shop. As you've just mentioned, Julia, the fact that, you know, you feel that you've got to be a bit quicker. I mean, not everybody feels that. Some people are standing there on their phones whilst you're supposed to be <laughs> waiting to move out the way so you can get past. And then other times you're standing in the shop or you're standing queuing, you've got that distance, great, all the way to the door. And as soon as you get in the door, everybody's almost clambering over each other, maybe not quite the same as they used to. But, um, but uh, it's it's an interesting concept. I certainly think it makes sense, but it does also beg the question, why didn't they do that before? Because there's always been people that want uh, want to rush through with a small basket, and the only option you've got is there's sort of five items at the till. And actually, I want six or seven, but... That still is not a huge trolley load, so uh, I think certainly it's making them think, and I'm sure quite a few of these things will will go forward mm. and change. Definitely, they'll they'll change our our habits.
0: I do wonder whether part of the motivation here, actually, with both of these initiatives, is to um, almost find ways to reward shoppers for responsible behaviour in store. Because mm-hmm. I think I, I don't know whether you found that when you've gone to stores recently. just anywhere actually, you know, the lockdown, even before the changes that came in this week, You know, I think people were starting to be a little bit more loosey-goosey and how they felt about social distancing. (laughs) You know, when I first went to my my local Sainsbury's here um, and, and, and you know, the local Morrison's as well, you sort of had people being very strict in sticking to, um, you know, social distancing rules. And it's just become a little bit looser recently. And I I could see how something like this, where you are giving the shopper agency, you are allowing them to pick a behaviour or to behave in a way that um, allows them to have sort of less contact, maybe spend a little uh, little bit less time dawdling in the aisles or to pick a time when it's likely to be quieter, whether that's a way to sort of say, well, if people are going to be a bit more relaxed around these rules, we can incentivise them to, mm. um, to to behave in a, in a more responsible way. So I think they're quite exciting. It's quite, I think it's quite... An, these initiatives sound quite small, but but I think there's potentially quite interesting thinking that, that lies behind that. So I'm certainly interested to see whether they are going to be um, adopted more widely and whether something like the sort of speedy boarding that um, that Morrison's is proposing is going to be something that, you know, they are going to make part of just the, the standard shopping experience. Yes. As you say, Lydia, I think there will definitely I could see people getting used to that and saying, yes. actually, um, it's it's quite nice to be rewarded for being a bit um, efficient. And maybe on the flip side, you know, maybe you could have a, a sort of browsing um, slot as well. So for people like me who feel self-conscious about browsing and discovering new products at the moment are allowed to do that in their own time as well. That's great. What was your final article, Julia? So my final article for this week um, is from the New York Times. um, And it's a story about Melitta, the German manufacturer of coffee filters, I grew up with Milita, we always had Milita filters in the house, so this story immediately caught my eye. Um, that's not the only reason, I promise you. Um, but this is a story essentially of a company showing great agility and innovation in the face of a crisis. But it also brings us back once again to supply chains, You know that sort of topic that's really been a red thread throughout our discussion today, um, and, and, and specifically the benefits of shorter supply chains in this example. So what Melita has started doing is produce face masks or face coverings. and um, They now make up to a million masks a day, um, providing much needed masks at a time when uh, Germany is making the wearing of masks in public mandatory. And the reason Melita was able to start producing so many masks pretty much overnight is because they had access to a crucial raw material within their own supply chain. And that material is melt blown fiber, which i 'd never heard of before I read this article but it 's a special fiber that 's needed to produce medical grade masks and it 's typically sourced from asia and Of course, getting hold of it right now is really, really difficult because everyone is is desperate to get hold of ppe everyone 's trying to produce masks but Melita had plenty of that fiber because it also happens to own a company that makes air filters and vacuum bags, and it makes that crucial raw material, the melt blown fiber in house. So that's pretty handy. And then this coupled with the fact that what Milita also found was that the shape of its coffee filters, is not really a million miles away from the shape of a face mask. Yes. And that it could therefore use existing production equipment to make those masks. So those masks are made on the same machine as its coffee filters. In fact, when you look at the um, uh, what they look like, there's some great photos in, in the New York Times article. I mean, they look like a coffee filter with some elastic, um, but because they're made from this special fiber, they're very clear and saying, please don't use them to brew coffee. That's a Apparently um, <laughs> not going to be healthy, um, and so I think it's a really interesting story of having a company that you know on the one hand is sort of being really agile, but on the other hand is has been rewarded um, because of these shorter supply chains and because it's uh, it, it decided to bring uh, the production of, of a key raw material in in house, um, and yeah, they're they're up to producing up to one million masks a day, they've started donating those masks to um, employees and their families. The second batch they donated to charities, and they're now looking to get them approved by health authorities as well. And um, and I think they'll be looking to commercialize them as well. So I thought a really interesting example of um, of, of what we've been talking about as far as supply chains um, were concerned. Would you be tempted to, uh, to wear a face mask that very much looks like you just took a coffee filter and added some elastic band to it? <laughs>
2: Well, at least I can go and get the pack if I'm, if I'm short. Sure. Well, and I, I think before,
0: just to, just to make sure that people don't start actually wearing coffee filters, I should say it's only if you use the filters made from that super special fibre. Don't just use your coffee filters. It's not going to work. <laughs> you need the special fibre, but you're basically going to look like um, you're just wearing a, a, a coffee filter. Great story to finish on. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.